Tonight I'd like to begin the discussion of the second step on the Noble Eightfold Path. In Pali, this is called Sama Sankapa, and it's usually translated as right thought or right intention, sometimes as right resolve or right aspiration. And tonight, in the context of this talk, I'll be using all of these terms synonymously, interchangeably. The importance of this step, right thought, is highlighted by one simple, obvious, but often overlooked truth. Namely, an understanding of the great power of habit and habitual tendencies in the unfolding of our lives. There's a contemporary biologist named Rupert Sheldrake, and he makes this point in a theory which he promotes, uh, which he calls morphic resonance. And in it he says that the more the habits of different species are repeated, the more probable they become. The more they're repeated, the more probable they become. So likewise, the more we repeat certain kinds of thoughts, certain kinds certain patterns of thought. The more often we repeat them, the more probable it is that they will arise again. So given that our actions are conditioned by how we think about ourselves and how we think about the world, so our actions are conditioned by thoughts, and given an appreciation of the potency of the law of karma, that wholesome and unwholesome factors of mind bring about their respective results. Given these two things, we can begin to understand the pivotal role of right thought as the next step on the path. Thoughts condition actions and different thoughts and motivations in the mind bring about results. So right thought is a powerful, pivotal place in understanding how our lives are unfolding. And the Buddha expressed it very succinctly. He said, Bhikkhus, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So we are creating the tendencies and inclinations of our minds by what we frequently think about, what we frequently ponder. So how do we come to right thought or right intention? It's all of the elements that we discussed in right view, which is the first step on the path, that lead us to the cultivation of those thoughts and intentions which result in both worldly happiness and also a more ultimate freedom. And this is how the steps on the path build one upon the other. The elements of right understanding or right view lead us to the cultivation of right thought. So the Buddha says, and what bhikkhus is right thought? 
It is thought or resolve of renunciation, which is thoughts free of sensual desire. Thoughts of goodwill, free of ill will. And thoughts of compassion, free of cruelty. Well, the Buddha is very explicit here. He's, he's telling us which are the thoughts which lead us in the direction of happiness. Thoughts of renunciation, of goodwill, of compassion. So the question for us then is how to put this step on the path into practice. There's one sutta or discourse in the middle length sayings of the Buddha, and the name of the sutta is called Two Kinds of Thoughts. And in it, the Buddha suggests to us a way to begin this practice. So in the sutta, the Buddha says bhikkhus, and remember here bhikkhus means not only monks or nuns, bhikkhus here, the meaning of the term, really includes everyone who's on the path. So the Buddha is addressing us here. Bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me. Suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I sent on one side thoughts of sensual desire, of ill will and of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, of goodwill, of compassion. And as I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, when a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I understood thus. So this is the Buddha telling us how he reflected when a thought of sense desire arose. And so you can listen carefully. He understood thus, this thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana. Then he went on, when I considered this leads to my own affliction, this thought of sense desire subsided. When I considered it leads to others' affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsided in me. When I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. Whenever a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, and did away with it. And he goes on in the same way with thoughts of ill will and cruelty. So the Buddha is very clear about his, uh, his own practice as a bodhisattva and how he worked with the thoughts that led to his own affliction, the affliction of others, the affliction of both, away from peace, away from Nibbana. So following in the Buddha's footsteps, we can cultivate in ourselves an increasingly clear discernment of the kinds of thoughts that are arising in our mind. We can practice noticing which thoughts are rooted in desire, 
which thoughts are rooted in ill will or cruelty, and consciously reflect on the harm that they cause and abandon them, letting them go. And we can notice those thoughts inclining towards renunciation or goodwill or compassion, reflect on their value and strengthen them in our lives. So all of this is the practice of a kind of wise reflection that is in the service of the path. In this step of right thought, we are actually reflecting a bit on the kinds of thoughts that arise in our mind, consciously reflecting, are they for harm or for good? Now something interesting begins to happen as we do this. As we become more mindful of these two classes of thought, we also become increasingly aware of the strength and seductive power of the unwholesome patterns. Because one would think, well, we see what's harmful, we see what's good. Okay, from now I'm going to just think the good. But it doesn't quite happen like that. The unwholesome patterns keep arising, and so we can begin to understand, well, why? You know, what's the force? What's the strength behind them? It's said that ill will and aversion are more dangerous than greed in terms of the harm that they cause, but they're easier to uproot. While desire is less dangerous in the harm that it causes, but harder to uproot. So why is this? You know, as we know, ill will is always unpleasant, and the suffering of it is obvious. So it's dangerous, but we can see the suffering, you know, and it becomes the impetus to uproot it. Sense desires, on the other hand, are usually associated with pleasure. And it's not always apparent why renouncing them is even a good idea. Why should we renounce pleasure? And the Buddha himself described this very same question, this very same situation. So at one time there were a group of lay people just like us, meeting with Ananda, who was the attendant and the cousin of the Buddha and a very, very well-loved monk. And so they were having this discussion. These are the householders speaking. So this is us. Venerable Ananda, sir, we are householders who indulge in sensuality delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. For us, indulging in, delighting in, enjoying, and rejoicing in sensuality, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, even the hearts of the very young monks leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. 
So right here in this issue of renunciation is where this doctrine and discipline is contrary to the great mass of people. I think we can relate to that. So Ananda heard this and he pondered a bit and he said, I think we should discuss this with the Buddha. So they all go off, Ananda and this whole group of lay people go off to where the Buddha was staying and Ananda repeats the conversation to the Buddha. So this is what the Buddha has to say about this. So it is, Ananda, so it is. Even I myself, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, thought renunciation is good, seclusion is good. But my heart didn't leap up at renunciation, didn't grow confident, steadfast or firm, seeing it as peace. But then he goes on. So this is what the Bodhisattva did. And this is what we need to do. The thought occurred to me, what is the cause? What is the reason my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation? What is the cause? What is the reason that my heart doesn't grow confident, steadfast or firm, seeing it as peace? Then the thought occurred to me, I haven't seen the drawback of sensual pleasures. I haven't pursued that theme. I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. I haven't familiarized myself with it. That's why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. So then the Buddha, the Sutta, continues, and the Buddha goes on to say that by reflecting on the drawbacks of sense pleasures and familiarizing himself with the value and rewards of renunciation, then there is the possibility of the heart leaping up you know, in the thought of practicing it. So tonight... I would like to explore and reflect both on the drawbacks of sensual pleasures and familiarize ourselves a bit more with the rewards of renunciation. The problem begins even when we first hear the word renunciation. Because at least in English and in our culture, we often associate that word of renunciation with repression of desires, repression or suppression, you know, with deprivation, with a rather bleak and austere lifestyle. You know, when we hear renunciation, that's what it sounds like to us. So it's no wonder that our hearts don't leap up at the thought of it. It doesn't sound all that appealing. But there's another way of understanding what renunciation means. And I think it's a more accurate one and certainly a more liberating one. And that is understanding renunciation as the experience of non-addiction. Because we all know and can relate to the suffering of addictions, 
to whatever it might be, you know, addiction to food, to alcohol, to drugs, to sex, or perhaps even more unnoticed addictions to work, you know, or maybe for some people power or recognition or wealth or comfort. You know, we all have our own, our own little addictions or big ones. We can become addicted and entranced, addicted to and entranced by certain mind states and emotions, like excitement. You know, we get addicted to excitement or the feeling of intensity, or even fear. Now, I've often wondered about the pleasure many people derive from horror movies. I could never quite understand it. It's like to go to the movies to be afraid, but. Evidently, there's a great pleasure in it because people are making a lot of money making these horror films. We become addicted not only to the gratification of our wants, whatever they may be, but also to the mental habit of wanting itself. We become addicted to wanting. And many of you probably have heard me give the example of something that's just so obvious to me about this, it's something I call catalog consciousness. And you know the experience, you must know the experience of, you know, you get these catalogs in the mail, and if you make the mistake of opening it, I find myself, it's like I'm turning pages, waiting for something to want. You know, I don't really want anything in the catalog. But I'll turn, maybe on the next page, there'll be something I want. And the next page, and it's like the mind is hooked in, the mind is addicted to wanting. Until finally you get to the last page, you just put the thing down. It's a mistake to even open it up. But by doing so, we can really see that habit, that particular addiction of mind. As you well know, Yogis can get addicted to different meditative states, maybe of rapture or calm on the one hand, or even addicted to investigation on the other hand. Some people's minds are inclined that way and just locked into that. One of the best interviews I had with Saida Upandita in Burma, because my mind inclines that way, if you haven't noticed, you know, just, it's just interested in how things are happening. And so this was, I had been there a few months in the, in the monastery, and so, you know, the concentration was pretty good, and I was just seeing so many subtle things, and so interested and fascinated by it. And I went in to the interview, and his only comment to me was, Joseph, you're too attached to subtlety. You know, and it was really a revelation, because here I thought it was good practice. And I didn't see that really my mind was, we could say, addicted or was leaning into trying to see more and more and more, you know, and was out of balance. How often in our practice, in one way or another, do we try to recreate some enjoyable experience we've had? You know, it might be calm, it might be peace, it might be subtlety, it might be rapture. You know, whatever we get a lot of satisfaction from in our practice, how often do we try to repeat it? Forgetting that the practice is really about not clinging. It's not about different states. 
but we get addicted in one way or another. What's so beguiling about these addictions, whether really big ones or very small ones, what's so beguiling about them is that in the moment of gratification, they do give us pleasure. And that's why we get hooked on them. But then we grasp at them, feel the lack when they change, as they inevitably do, and reach for them again. So this just becomes a cycle. Or we look for another source of momentary pleasure, and then another until we're totally immersed in the wanting mind, the grasping states of mind. We become quite firmly enmeshed in the force field of our own desires. And what's interesting is, very often, both in our lives outside and here on retreat, we don't even see this. We don't see that we're enmeshed. We don't see that we're entrapped. So just as an example of this, or a little experiment you can do. Just as you go through the day, pay attention to your very habitual actions. You know, just the habits of mind. And you might not think of them as addictions. You know, but it's just something you're in the habit of doing it. Maybe at the same time every day, or just something you do every day. Notice what these habits are. And then you might ask yourself, how easy would it be to give it up? How easy would it be to let go of that? I find that with well-established habits, the thought of giving them up, it's a moment. There's definitely a moment. No, I don't want to. And so we can just see the that grasping power of the mind. Okay, so this is the power of addiction, the power of sense desire, of grasping. It's possible, though, to relate to desire and to sense desire in an altogether different way, in a way of much greater freedom. And it's really what we're doing in our practice. It's possible through practice to develop a wise restraint, a settling back and allowing the desires to arise and to pass without feeling the need or the compulsion to act on them. And in this practice of renunciation, in this practice of settling back and not feeling the compulsion to act on each of these desires, we can taste for ourselves that there's greater ease in not wanting than in wanting. We really experience that. There's greater ease in not wanting than in wanting. So right here we get a glimpse of the third noble truth, the end of craving. 
even if at first it's just for a very few moments. But we taste it, we really see it in our own experience. So as an experiment in your practice and as part of the practice of noticing when thoughts of sense desire are present, pay very careful attention to those moments of transition when we go from being lost in wanting, when we go from being lost in some sense enjoyment, including enjoyment of our mental fantasies, notice that moment of transition when we go from being lost in the wanting in the enjoyment to being free of the wanting. Because everything's changing, and so the desire, the wanting itself, even if we're lost in it and identified with it, at a certain point it will end. Notice that moment when it ends. Notice the transition. And in the same way, and it's just another aspect of this, notice the transition from moments of being lost in or identified with pleasant feeling. Whatever the pleasant feeling is. Notice the difference when you go from being lost in the pleasant feeling to being mindful of the pleasant feeling. Okay, do you see the exercise? Noticing those moments of transition from being lost in wanting to that moment when we're free of wanting. Identified with pleasant feeling to being mindful of pleasant feeling. My experience repeatedly in practice, in these moments of transition when when I'm really aware of them, it always feels like I'm being let out of the grip of something. It's like being let out of the grip of wanting, being let out of the grip of desire. No matter how pleasant it might be, it always feels like it's opening to a larger, wider, more expansive state of heart and mind. So we want to see this in our experience. It's not enough just to kind of hear this and kind of intellectually, yeah, that sounds right. For it to have a transforming value and impact, we need to see it. We need to see how this is happening, and it's not hard. We just need to pay attention. There's one verse in the Dhammapada which says, if by giving up a lesser happiness, a greater happiness can be found, a wise person would renounce the lesser for the sake of the greater. So being lost in the wanting or identified with the pleasures, sense pleasures, there is a pleasure, there is a happiness in that. But when you see the greater happiness of not wanting, of being mindful of the pleasant feeling rather than lost in it, the wise person renounces the lesser happiness for the sake of the greater. But at this point, it's coming out of our own understanding, our own insight. It's not because somebody tells us it's a good idea. So in these moments, 
we begin to get mm, some understanding of the possibility that our hearts might leap up at renunciation, grow in confidence, steadfast and firm, seeing it as peace, because we've tasted it, we've seen it for ourselves. But even when we've had this experience in our practice and in our lives, still developing the parami of renunciation is a very gradual process for most of us. Because there's often <clears throat> just a fear or anxiety <clears throat> in the thought of giving up something that we like, of letting go. Until we've seen for ourselves and until we've seen it repeatedly, not just once, we need to see again and again that this renunciation leads to greater happiness, greater well-being. So just as a few examples, some small, some a little bigger, of this process. When I finished the Peace Corps in Thailand, this goes back to the mid-60s, I came home, tried to practice so that I really needed a teacher. I was getting very confused, just trying to figure all this out by myself. So I went back to Asia and ended up in India uh, after traveling around a bit, ending up in Bodh Gaya, uh, where I met my first teacher, Manindraji. And I spent quite a few years in Bodh Gaya practicing. And one of those years, uh, I just decided I'm going to shave my head. Now at that time, I was in my 20s, and shaving my head actually meant something. <laughs> now it really wouldn't make much difference. But it was amazing. So this, I was just, I was young, you know, I was, like, I was just in my 20s and had all this hair. I gave so much thought to this. It's like, it just, before I did it, if, should I do it, shouldn't I do it? It just felt like such a big thing to do. But then, okay, I'm going to do it. And so, just I had my head shaved. About three and a half seconds after it was shaved, I realized it didn't make the slightest difference at all. This thing which had loomed so large meant nothing. Not only, not only didn't it mean anything in terms of you know, losing anything of value, it actually felt great, you know, just in terms of keeping it clean and head felt light. So it's just an example of before the renunciation, it can, it can really seem big, and afterwards we just appreciate the ease of it. So in a slightly kind of bigger frame, but the same process, before I went to Burma for the first time, you know, I had practiced in India for many years, and the practice in India, in Bodh Gaya, uh, was very loose. You know, Munindra was there some of the time, a lot of the time he was gone for months, you know, at a time when I would just be sitting and walking by myself. So there wasn't much structure. In that way, in some way it was a vision for the forest refuge, just really relying on myself and 
my own discipline. But then many years later, after having been back in the States and teaching, some of my friends started going to the monasteries in Burma, and they were kind of telling stories of, you know, really how rigorous it was, and, you know, just having to fit into the monastic rules and discipline and lifestyle. And I heard that. I was very reluctant to go, even though I thought I really should. But there was, I was reluctant. But then Saira Upandita came here and connected with them, and I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to just go and be there for some time. The night before I left, I had this anxiety dream. <laughs> I dreamt that I arrived at the monastery in Burma and they took my zafu away. <laughs> you know, I was just reflective of all my fears, you know, oh my God, what is this going to be like? What am I going to have to give up? Of course, it was wonderful. It was totally wonderful and I loved being there and the practice was very conducive for practice. But it's that, it's that fear or anxiety before we actually do it that renunciation feels you know, really difficult and stressful and we haven't yet seen the ease that it brings. So we can practice renunciation here playing at the edges of our own comfort zone. You know, what would it be like, for example, to undertake, at least for some time, uh, the eight precepts instead of the five, and particularly you know, not eating solid food after noon. You know, in practicing in the monasteries in Burma, and also with the Sayadaws when they come here to the West, following eight precepts, undertaking the eight precepts, is just the norm. It's like everybody does it and everybody's expected to do it. And what I found interesting in watching my own mind, is how easy and unproblematic it was in those situations. You know, in the monasteries or with the side house, no problem at all. And to really feel how conducive it is just to the lightness of body and mind. You know, we're, we're not overloading the system and things get very light. But what's interesting, when I'm left to my own devices, if I'm not practicing with a sayadaw or in a monastery, I sometimes see this reluctance to play that edge. Oh, no, I don't think I'll do the eight precepts this time. You know? And it just points to the depth of the conditioning in the mind and the value of repeated practice of renunciation. It's not a question of once or twice. If we repeatedly practice it, until the rewards and the happiness that it brings really becomes the default understanding of our mind. It's like we begin to really understand it from the inside for ourselves. So it's something you might consider. You know, if you really want to play with this, you know, if it could be for a day, for two days, for a week, for the whole time you're here. And just see if if it feels right for you, and and maybe for certain people, for whatever reason, it's not the right time. So you you have to see this is not a compulsion or a should. It's just is this something I want to explore? Does it feel appropriate to explore now? 
The Buddha often referred to the blessing of renunciation as the cleansing of the mind and heart. And he uses, he uses that term, cleansing. It's very apt. And I feel this very frequently when I'm with monks or nuns who are well established in the monastic lifestyle, you know, where renunciation is just, it's the way of life. We can feel just there's a certain clarity and purity and simplicity and contentment that is often in rather stark contrast to the busyness, the speed, the clutter, and the ordinary desires of our worldly life. You know, there's a delight in just being with these people. It's, it's almost like there's a contact high, you know, of peace and ease. And it comes from the cleansing aspect, that purifying aspect of renunciation. It's very palpable. Now, although most of us are not living as monks and nuns, we can still find ways to practice renunciation in our lives and experience the contentment that it brings. So one thing which I mentioned a bit earlier, just look at the habits that have been established in the day. You know, and see just with some wisdom, would some of these habits be worth letting go of, not doing? Or just changing the habit? You know, do something else. Just for the sake of practicing that letting go, see what it's like. It aerates things a little bit. You know, we, we don't get so stuck in our patterns. We can practice renouncing complexity. You know, so often we're lost in the drama of our stories and emotions, and in some way we relish them. It's like we're just living in the, we might say, the melodrama of our lives. And we can create very complicated lives for ourselves. And yet when we experience investigate experiences in the moment more carefully, we see, as you know, that there are really only six things that ever happen. When we look carefully in any moment, all that's happening are moments of seeing and hearing, smelling and tasting, sensations, and objects of mind. Our experience is a six-piece chamber orchestra, and it's just these different instruments playing in different combinations. That's really what's happening. So both here on retreat and also in your life at home, when things just feel too complex, too stressful, too confused, remember the possibility of renouncing 
the habit of papancha, you know, the, per- the proliferation of the I, me, mind story, and come back again and again to the simplicity of the moment. Stephen Mitchell, who many of you know, he's, he's a poet and a wonderful translator. Um, he had his own book of poetry called Parables and Portraits. And all of the poems in there, they're very, they're very nice. And each one has kind of a little Buddhist twist to it. So this particular poem is called The Myth of Sisyphus. And it really is about the potential of renouncing, we could say renouncing complexity, renouncing our melodramas, or renouncing our addictions. And remember, Sisyphus was you know, condemned by the gods to keep rolling this big stone up the hill and just as it got to the, near the top, it would fall back down again. And so kind of the endlessness of that struggle. This is the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. So we want to look at our own Sisyphusian endeavors. You know, what are we addicted to? What are we attached to? What do we keep struggling with? And see the possibility, the beauty of the lightness, of the ease of renunciation, of just stepping back. So as we practice this in our lives, there's also another way or another particular practice of renunciation, which I call the wisdom of no. So often in spiritual practice, we emphasize yes. It's the yes of acceptance, the yes of openness, the yes of richness, of fullness of experience. And this yes, very frequently, is the antidote to self-judgment, to contraction, to limitation. We're saying yes to things. But there's also the wisdom of no, which is recognizing that some things are not skillful, not helpful, not leading to happiness. And we can practice saying, no, thank you, I'll pass on this one. It's important to understand what this restraint, this wisdom of no means, because it really is a central part of our practice. Practicing the wisdom of no is a great art, 
And we need to learn how to do it in a wise and loving way. Because this restraint, this no, is not repression. It's not avoidance. It doesn't mean pushing things away or denying their presence. It doesn't mean being judgmental or having an aversion toward certain aspects of our experience. With wise restraint, we are open to everything that arises, but we see what arises with discriminating wisdom. We see the skillful thoughts and activities that are conducive to our happiness and the unskillful ones that simply lead to further suffering and conflict. It's just like a parent saying no to a child who is about to do something harmful. It's a no of concern and care for the welfare and happiness of the child. Now just imagine some kid who never heard a no, who was just allowed to act on every impulse that it had. Be a little monster, (laughs) you know. Would not be conducive at all to the child's happiness or to the happiness of people around him or her. So you've probably noticed by now that we all have an inner two-year-old. You know, a lot of our thoughts and emotions and desires and wants, it's just like this little two-year-old. I want this, I want that. Give me this, give me that. So we need to be, in our practice, the wise and loving parent. No, that's not a good idea. That's not going to bring happiness. So as we watch our minds through the day, we can practice the wisdom of no, even in small things. One of the questions that Saida Utejaniya has suggested bringing to mind regarding thoughts and desires, just some questions. Different thoughts arise, different desires arise. Is this necessary? Is this helpful? So we actually get creative in our relationship to what's arising. We, we are bringing wisdom to it. And sometimes we want to respond with a yes, and sometimes we want to respond with a no, a loving no. with many of our thoughts and desires. No, I don't need to carry on being lost in this. No, I don't need to do this. It's not helpful. And we see this, we see this, the power of this in our practice and commitment to the precepts. Because really, what are the precepts and, and our commitment to them based on? It's based on the understanding that certain actions are unskillful. And just by our commitment to the precepts, if we have the impulse, you know, in a moment, maybe to kill an insect or 
take something that hasn't been offered. Just our commitment to the precepts comes to the foreground. No, I don't need to do that. That's not skillful, that's not helpful. So it's empowering. In this way, this practice of renunciation, the power of no, becomes the expression of a free mind. Now, the power of restraint, it leads to a strength of mind. It leads to a conservation of energy. We're not dissipating our energy in unskillful impulses. It brings about a steadfastness, a certain kind of stillness that's not easily shaken. In his book, Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell, who many of you know is a scholar of the world's myths and spiritual traditions, he wrote of the Buddha's life as a great archetypal journey. And he described different stages or different experiences in the Bodhisattva's journey to Buddhahood you know, as representing different stages of the path. So in this book, Campbell described the Bodhisattva on the eve of his enlightenment, the eve of his awakening, when he came face to face with Mara, you know, which are all the forces in the mind of delusion, of greed and desire and longing and aversion. Just all these, all these forces of Mara confronted the Bodhisattva as he sat under the tree. And Campbell describes this in very mythopoetic and language and very vivid imagery. And then in the face of all these powerful forces, as the Bodhisattva sat there, Campbell describes just in one line the unshakable steadfastness of the Bodhisattva as he sat there. And this one line just, for me, it captures the essence of what we're practicing. So just imagine kind of all these forces of delusion appearing, arrayed against the Bodhisattva, and the line is, and the mind of the great being was not moved. And the mind of the great being was not moved. And I just find that tremendously inspiring as I relate it to my own practice. You know, as we're faced with all of these forces arising, all the hindrances, you know, the desire and the aversion and the fear and whatever it is that may be arising, can we practice that quality of renunciation that is not becoming identified with these forces? They're there, they're going to arise can our minds, like the mind of the great being, sit there and not be moved? This is the great gift, this is the reward that the Buddha spoke of, of the power of a wise understanding of renunciation. It's renouncing our identification with 
anything at all. So Ajahn Chah, in his usual very direct and down-to-earth way, he really summed all this up. He said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So this is the first part of this step on the path, path, the Eightfold Path, the step of right thought. The first part is right thought of renunciation. And so we want to explore it and understand it and apply it in our practice and in our lives. Let's sit for a couple of moments. Let's chant the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.